0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: And hello, I'm James Carlton. Welcome to God Forbid. For Western Christians, Catholics and Protestants, Easter was last weekend. But it's at this time of year or thereabouts that Eastern Orthodox Christians around the world, including one million in Australia, are supposed to be gathering for their holiest time of year. Now, if you've been to an Orthodox church service, you'll know they're special. Close your eyes, smell the incense, and be transported back to the earliest days of the church. No instruments, just chanting from the priest. But not this year. Because of the virus, Orthodox priests are stuck at home with nothing to do but make viral videos ordering Chinese takeaway in the Orthodox way.
2: Hello, can I start with three servings of Peking duck? One Mongolian beef and fried rice and some dumplings. One serving of spring rolls a gan pao chicken was extra ginger and one crab claw. Actually, can you make it two crab claws, please? And do you do delivery? I said, don't.
1: Well, even older than the Orthodox Church is the Pesach or Passover festival for the Jews, which was last week. In fact, the Gospels of the Christians say that the Last Supper of the Jew Jesus was the Pesach meal. And before and since, social distancing wasn't enforced, it was forbidden. And as fate would have it, on Australia's second worst day for coronavirus infections, the scheduled Torah reading for Jews around the world was Vayakhel. That's the one where Moses leaves self-isolation, so to speak, on Mount Sinai and joins the Israelites en masse to break every social distancing rule in the five books. It's an irony that wasn't lost on Sydney's Rabbi Rafi Kaiserbluth.
2: We're reading VaYakel, and that first word is actually a beautiful word. It's a word that is generally translated as gathered. But if you look at the root, kahal, it's the word for congregation. And Moses is not just gathering the people, but Moses is actually causing them to be gathered. Now I want to be clear, at this point right now, I am not suggesting that all of us physically come to gather together. That would be against many practical and professional and medical advice. However, what does it mean to be connected, to be gathered together? You may not, for example, be able to sit with your neighbor at services. However, you can easily pick up the phone, video chat. Find a way that we will vayak hell. We will continue to maintain and cause others to be gathered together as we weather this challenging time. And just as Moses, when he caused the entire community to be gathered together, we will continue to cause one another to maintain these holy and spiritual bonds with one another.
1: That's Rabbi Rafi Kaiserbluth at Sydney's Emmanuel Synagogue. He and his fellow clergy send daily video messages now to the congregation as they stay at home. Of course, the need to maintain connection applies to all contexts, family, friends, secular spaces, work, for those of us lucky enough still to have jobs. And the worst-case scenarios don't... well really bear thinking about, do they? What if there's no vaccine for years? What does this mean when an army of unemployed is is joined by a brigade of the lonely, you know, the disconnected, the dispossessed, the disposed of? We'll be looking at this later in the show. But first to our God Forbid panel. And Susan Murphy is a master of Zen Buddhism. She's the founder of Sydney's Zen Open Circle and the author of Minding the earth, mending the world, plus her latest red thread Zen, humanly entangled in emptiness. Roshi Susan Murphy, welcome back to God Forbid.
3: Thank you very much, James. Thank you.
1: Susan, Buddhists say everything is impermanent. Well, you have been proven right at last because it seems since the last time you were on this show, everything is different
3: pretty true isn't it yes
1: how are you adapting to your new life
3: well it's interesting of course if you have a meditation practice it's um business as usual it's not the interruption to business as usual it's a kind of quietness that's fallen over the world in lots of ways and it's pretty hard not to feel at home in that
1: Does that mean you can adapt to isolation more easily because you're a master of Zen Buddhism?
3: Well, I suppose you could say it's just more customary to be alone together, which is the real inside experience of meditation, a sense of being alone but very much gathered in, to use one of the words I heard in in the introduction there. But it's a solitude that's chosen. It's very different from being left alone or you know a kind of unfortunate loneliness it's an expansive state rather than feeling as though we're now exiled from some kind of set of the way things should be or the way things usually are this time of of self-isolation is a kind of refuge in now you know a refuge in without expectations As you pointed out, we have no idea how this is going to unfold. But when you are expanding into that state of no expectations, it turns out you can't find anything actually repeating. There's no discernible, maddening sameness to anything
1: And also on the God Forbid panel, the Reverend Dr. Dorothy Lee. She's a professor of New Testament studies at Trinity College. She's an ordained priest and member of the Anglican Church's Doctrine Commission. Her dozen plus books and chapters on the Gospels, particularly John, are studied by theologians around the world. Dr. Dorothy Lee, welcome to God Forbid.
4: Thank you, James. It's lovely to be here.
1: Lovely to have you back, Dorothy. Does what Susan just said have any similarity or overlap with what you understand as Christian teaching?
4: Uh, yes, I think there's quite a bit of overlap in in what Susan was saying, and I appreciated very much listening to her speak. Um, I'm not sure we'd agree on absolutely everything, but uh, but certainly on that sense of uh, of the importance of meditation of um, being alone with yourself, that that sense of being gathered in um, is all very much uh, coheres with um, Christian mystical understanding, which goes right back to the very earliest days um, of the Christian church. Um, It began, I suppose, most obviously with the desert fathers and mothers who deliberately and consciously retreated to the desert, um, not to get away, but in order to reach a deeper place. Um, and a deeper place of peace where they could pray for the peace of the world um, and and battle against the forces of of violence that they saw within the cosmos. And so their their solitude was a a conscious decision, and that's always been there within Christian teaching about the the need for uh, meditation, for silence, for solitude. It is not just an Eastern phenomenon. And when we retreat, uh, when we withdraw, from the obvious world from the outer world we actually enter into a space where god is present where we believe the holy trinity is present where the angels are are, are present where where we're in a, a profound community of persons
1: so the early church mothers and fathers weren't existentially alone they were physically alone
4: yes and and they recognized that there's a deprivation in being um, physically alone. Um, there's, I mean, Christianity places a lot of emphasis on the body, so to be absent from other bodies um, is painful, is a deprivation, but it, it's a necessary deprivation for us at the moment. But it's actually necessary, a necessary deprivation in order to find something deeper, something more joyful, um, that is present in aloneness, in our in a deeper level of connection with the universe
1: but reverend dorothy if i may be frank at this time in the 21st century when the world is in the state that it is in uh, for a lot of people whose lives have been destroyed or are about to be destroyed the story of moses as for the rabbi as we heard the story of jesus yes. who inspires you they don't offer real practical solutions for the predicament that people face, Jesus, frankly, does not pay the rent.
4: Well, I'm not sure that's true of either Jesus or Moses. Um, There's a very strong emphasis running through the Hebrew Bible and also the New Testament on on justice, on working towards justice. Um, And and the ultimate purpose, even of solitude and aloneness, is a, a redeemed world, a transformed world where there is no poverty. Um, and an indifference to the poor is, is anathema um, in Christian understanding. The early fathers and mothers say that and modern theologians say it. We have an ethical responsibility to, to care for others, to distribute our resources um, and not to hoard them. Uh, I think there's an anti-capitalistic um, impetus within Christianity, actually, that, that uh, is against the, the individual building up and amassing wealth um, at the expense of the poor. I think that's totally contrary to Jesus' teaching and indeed to, um, to, to the Hebrew Bible.
1: But, Dorothy, if we can't do that with toilet paper, how are we going to do it with property?
4: Well, actually, the toilet paper is an example of human nature at its worst, I admit. But on the other hand, over against that, you have um, doctors and nurses and, and not just medical people, people stacking things on shelves who are prepared to take the risk who actually are caring for others and caring for others in a very practical way. So the toilet paper example is perhaps the worst of human nature, but we we also see, as we did with the bushfires, we see the worst and we see the best.
1: Well, touche. And... Roshi Susan Murphy, I want to speak to you later in the program about bushfires because this is something that has touched you directly. But before we get there, it is our end, God forbid. I am James Carlton and um, we are with Roshi Susan Murphy, a master of Zen Buddhism, and the Reverend Dr. Dorothy Lee, a professor of New Testament studies at Trinity College. Dr. Robert Ayres is postdoctoral research fellow at Swinburne University in Melbourne. He says loneliness is a bit like thirst and hunger. Everyone experiences it, some mildly, some to deadly extremes. It's simply your body's or your mind's way of telling you something.
5: Loneliness is a subjective negative experience of feeling like we are disconnected from the people around us. Uh, It's something that everybody experiences to some extent. Now because it is quite a common experience, it has an evolutionary drive in a sense for us to seek out connections. Uh, Just as uh, food is for hunger and water is for thirst, loneliness is our sense of uh, need to meet other people and feel connected. Now when that has been removed or we feel like we are experiencing loneliness, this has a big impact on on a range of different uh, parts of our experience in life. It impacts our mental health as well as our physical health. Uh, and it can, and can be something that carries along with us for quite a long time. So in terms of our mental health, it has impacts on de- uh, our sense of depression or our mood, our anxiety, uh, and even things like paranoia. And with our physical health, it can have impacts on our cholesterol, hypertension, and things like this.
1: Dr. Robert Ares, postdoctoral research fellow at Swinburne University. He was speaking on RN's Big Ideas. We'll put a link to the full interview on the God Forbid website. Well, the Reverend Dr. Dorothy Lee, hunger, thirst, loneliness. It's a very clinical grouping of the three, wouldn't you say?
4: Yes, but, but they're all things that we absolutely need to find ways of fulfilling and proper ways too. I mean, there's a good analogy with food there. If, if we are hungry and we eat a whole lot of junk food, um, it's not actually going to do our body any good. And I think it's with also with that sense of loneliness. If, if we fill it with junk, metaphorically speaking, then it, it doesn't do us any good. If, if we're running away from that empty space that we all experience inside us, then you know we're just filling it with crap and what what this gives us is a marvelous opportunity to actually stop and think so that we can't have easy ways to just fill in the gaps we actually do need to reflect on what really does fulfill us what really does lead us from loneliness to a sense of connection connection is is the right word
1: Yes. Roshi Susan Murphy, what about this idea that a little bit of loneliness can be good to drive you to connect?
3: In a way, solitude, aloneness, if it is chosen, if it is entered into with curiosity and willingness, is utterly different from being left alone or abandoned or cut out from contact. Because in fact, contact opens up enormously in that space Partly because it's it's a kind of uninterrupted time to be unburdened by self, by a sense of self. It's not it's almost like the lifting of that drag of self. There's no free-floating, generalized anxiety of you know, this fragile and ferocious self, which is sometimes a little bit like a two-year-old, you know, it's caught between a dream of being omnipotent and a terrible fear of being utterly impotent and helpless and overlooked, that sense of self drops off. It goes quiet. And then there's a sense of being drawn back in. So if we didn't understand interdependence before this COVID virus, if we didn't understand all beings as one body, well, we do now. I mean, the lesson of interdependence has been brought home, if you like, by... Mother Nature, who somebody suggested has sent us all to our rooms to have a good think about a few things. So that sense of direct transmission of reality and solitude opens up the space to reconnect.
1: But isn't that wrong on two important counts? One, firstly, we're not all one body because we've been set into forced isolation. And secondly, this virus... Is evil and needs to be killed even though it is living? Not all life is precious. This life is unprecious and must be killed, this virus?
3: <clears throat> no, it's more the sense that you know the only way I can keep you safe is to regard myself as being unsafe. We are so interconnected, interdependent within the space of of pandemic. It's brought home so, you know, so powerfully that the whole economy has to be shut down. To separate us out is actually to prove the sense of utter interdependence upon which everything rests. It proves it more physically and vividly than you could possibly have, have dreamt of. In the sense, it's put a brake on the economy, you know, limitless growth, endless growth. And so... The sense of the virus is like a kind of vivid explanation of the fact that all lives are utterly, literally touching each other and transmitting life, and even, in this case, dangerous life between each other.
1: Well, it is, RN, God forbid, we are with Roshi Susan Murphy and Reverend Dr Dorothy Lee. Are we ultimately connected or, indeed, ultimately separated and alone? We'll hear different views up next, including that of... Philip Adams. You can feel lonely surrounded by friends. You can feel lonely even in the embrace of a loving spouse. You can feel connected and loved even if you're physically alone. So too, faith can leave you feeling empty, isolated in the world. You can have no belief yet find meaning and purpose. How are all these paradoxes true? Well, we'll hear from Emily White, the author, in a moment. But first, RN's Philip Adams asks Interfaith Minister Stephanie Dowrick whether faith or spirituality can make loneliness less intense in these troubled times, less unpleasant.
6: Look, not necessarily faith not necessarily faith at all, but some sense of spiritual connection, undoubtedly. It doesn't mean that you're not going to feel alone sometimes, but you will feel alone differently. I I can really, I can testify. <laughs> I can testify to that, and not, not because of my own experience only, I might say, but because I've worked with literally hundreds and hundreds of people in workshops over these many, many years. And I've seen that, there's, there's sort of two factors to it. One is that a, a sense of spiritual seeking brings people together, generally speaking, uh, with wholesome ideals, particularly when it's not entirely me-focused, when it's also focused on, you know, and, and and how can I contribute something to the society in which we live? And none of that depends on a kind of, necessarily on a, on a, on a belief in a deity. Um but I think the other side of that is that most people who have a, a regular spiritual practice, you know whether it's meditation, whether it's prayer, whether it's study, whether it's going to a you know a community, whether it's chanting, whatever it is, um not only will be doing some of those things with other people and sharing that um, experience, but also when you are actually doing those uh, practices, they meet, that place within yourself. And that's really what I meant when I said a tolerable amount or a small amount or a provocative amount of loneliness can be quite a, a, a useful catalyst because it can say to you, what, what is it that I need to bring into my life? And also, and very significantly, what is it that I need to be giving to life in order to feel more connected?
1: Emily, I'm going to ask you a final question and let me set it up. I believe that human beings are alone in the cosmos. I am an atheist. To me, the universe is meaningless. We create meanings that that, that suit us. And uh, But at the same time, the ultimate loneliness comes from the fact that we are mortal and we know that we die. Mm -hmm. In the last couple of years, I've had some pretty close uh, encounters with the Reaper, and I've been with a lot of people who have been dying. This is the loneliest time in the life of a human being, but... Once again, it's an important experience, I think, to feel or to face the approach of death alone as you ultimately are. Have you ever thought about this? Uh,
3: yeah, and I don't agree with you. Um, I, 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 It's just a philosophical position that some people hold. I, I don't think we are fundamentally alone. You know, this notion that we're born alone, it's just actually not true. Your mom is there. And... People are with us all the time, and we can have moments of aloneness, and we can favor that aloneness, but uh, this, there's sort of a stoicism attached to the idea that we're born alone and we die alone, and a lot of people actually don't die alone either. Um, I think we come into this world needing connection, and that doesn't need to be a, you know, a romantic relationship, but I think a lot of what we're looking for in this world is connection. And you can find it in all sorts of ways.
1: That's Emily White, author of Lonely, Learning to Live with Solitude. And before her, the author and interfaith minister, Stephanie Dowrick, both speaking with Philip Adams. We'll put a full link to the LNL episode on the God Forbid website. Reverend Dr. Dorothy Lee, your reaction to what you heard?
4: Well, my reaction to what uh, both the women said, I mean, I'd have to say I entirely agree with them. i I, I don't agree with Philip Adams that we are ultimately alone. I think that the final statement about human beings is that we are not alone, that we are profoundly connected, whatever we believe, and that if we choose not to be connected, that 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 is our choice. We can disconnect if we want to, but I think the ultimate reality about our humanity, is that we are not alone and, and I'm speaking as a Christian who is now celebrating
3: Easter. When I hear the sense you know, Philip Adams, for example, talking about being utterly alone and I'm I'm hearing him talking about that carved out sense of self. The one that has been in a sense alienated almost by by habit, by by the way that language works, by By this funny sense that you can discover, I can remember when I discovered the word I, I was sitting, reading, learning to, I just started to learn to read. I hadn't gone to school yet. My sister taught me to read. I came across this in the middle of a sentence, this capital I. And I thought, that's weird. It's not at the beginning of a sentence. What is this? So I took it just standing alone. So I took it to my father and said, what is this word? And he said, oh, that's You. And I can remember the sort of combination of a sense of shock and maybe pride and a sense of some sort of astonishing moment of being named as separate, carved out, individual. And that's a wonderful kind of discovery. But it also lives inside a child differently because alongside that, I've I've seen my granddaughter run down the beach shouting out, I am the waves, I am the beach, I am the seagulls. And that's, both those are present in a young child coming into some sort of relationship with each other. But to spend an entire adult life landlocked in that sense of I, in opposition, in separation and opposition from all other forms and points of sentience is sad, it's a sort of, Self-chosen exile.
1: So your granddaughter was in exile?
3: Not at all. She was she was the beach. She was the grand she was everything around her with, with with joy, proclaiming it, shouting it out. So that's a very different state. And I think it's a state that we find our way back into when we enter that that quiet sense where it's actually quite hard to find anything substantive that you would call myself. You're not dragging yourself along with you. You're not, you're not burdened by self. You're not interrupted by self. It then becomes possible to discover what I meant by all beings, one body, because, because that one body doesn't leave out the beach, the seagulls, the breaking waves. It doesn't leave out any other human being. It doesn't leave out any other being of any form at all. And that is a very expansive self.
1: And, Dorothy, do you see this coronavirus lockdown as a threat or an opportunity in that context?
4: Um, I think it's both. Uh, I I think we we need to see that it's a destructive force, um, that it is, even if it's (laughs) uh, maybe uh, destroying some of the things that needed to be destroyed, it's destroying um, people's livelihoods. Um, It's uh, creating great tension and anxiety, um, on parents, on children, on the elderly. Uh, so I think it's it's uh, a negative thing, in, but it also provides us with an opportunity. And it's an opportunity for us to be more reflective in our lives, perhaps to take up a meditation practice. It gives us the opportunity to be caring for others, for our neighbours. It gives us the opportunity to um, connect with other people, in perhaps other ways and perhaps deeper ways, so I see it both as a threat and as an opportunity. I just wanted to r- respond to some of the things Susan said. Uh, um, some of it I found really quite lovely about um, about you know living by damage and our interdependence. But I think I'd also not quite sure what Susan means by. Self by losing self, I mean, to my mind, there's a, a false self, and uh, that uh, that we need to lose. Um, Christian faith talks about dying to that old sense of self, um, and rising to a new sense of self. So there is, it seems to me, an authentic sense of selfhood, by which you are able to experience, to be aware of that connection um, to to God to other people, to creation itself, and indeed to your own self, without it being something that intrudes, that gets in the way. I think the false self is like baggage that we're dragging around. But I think there's a true self that opens us to others um, and that gives us a a true sense of who we are, uh, a sense of humility, um, a sense of openness um, to others, to compassion, um, to love, um, and and so I would want to say that there is some true sense of self that is irretrievably connected to our bodies. But I say that as a Christian theologian.
3: At all, at all, Dorothy, you couldn't have said it better for me myself. I mean, there is a, a phrase, the essential self or the true self. Yes, which, yes. Which is, of course, not bounded by a sense of a, a sort of social sense that requires self-presentation or self-performance. In solitude, you don't have to be performing the self. In a Zen Session, a seven-day silent retreat, you know, we give each other not just the gift of silence, we give each other the gift of lifting social pressure or obligation, and this entirely yes. graceful yes. way emerges of everything moving together, which it does yes. in, in this universe, without having to make greetings or eye contact there are sort of small gestures of respect or gratitude, a little bow that people give to each other at times. But it's solitude in such close company, in this generous kind of silence. And a yes. really deep closeness yes. and connection grows there. And people can open up beyond their sense of of me. You know, when, when the Buddha woke, the, the phrase that's often used to describe that he is said to have said Nobody was there to record it, but this is how it's been passed down. He said, above the heavens, below the heavens, only I, alone and holy. Now that I, alone and holy, leaves nothing out. It's a sense of I that is not me. It's not enclosed or encapsulated. It is edgeless. It has no outside. It has. It is seamless with all that is. And I think that is very close to the mystical, the Christian mystical experience. It is is indeed. Yes, absolutely. Yes.
1: Well, on our end, God forbid, we'll put that to the test. Up next, practical ideas on uh, how to be alone. It is, God forbid, we're with the Reverend Dr. Dorothy Lee, Professor of New Testament Studies at Trinity College. Also, Roshi Susan Murphy, a Master of Zen Buddhism, the founder of Sydney's Zen Open Circle. How many times have you said to yourself, oh, if only I had a week to tie up a few loose ends around the house, if only I had a couple of weeks to fix this, to take care of that, just a couple of weeks, a month even, that's all I need, my life would be perfect. Well, you've had it now. Is your life perfect? Didn't think so. The funny thing is, longing to be released from forced routine and being released from forced routine are quite different things, aren't they? That's what Yumi Steins found out when she spoke to clinical psychologist Dr. Jackie Winship on her podcast, Ladies We Need to Talk.
0: It's sometimes harder even when you're alone to keep some kind of normal routine going. There's less sort of imperative to have to get up at the same time of day or have meals cooked So for those people, I would recommend sort of trying to keep some kind of routine going because I think it anchors us. But having some sort of routine to hang your hat on, I think, can be helpful. And then really importantly is to try and stay in connection with others.
4: My routine at the moment seems to consist mostly of staring into my phone while falling into a yawning pit of existential horror 10 times a day. Just kidding. More like 40 times a day. Jackie, I have had a drinking problem for years and I'm sober and I feel pretty strong in that right now, but I admit that I'm also feeling more tempted to drink than I have in years. And how about all those other people who maybe had a mild drinking habit that is really spiralling into something bigger right now and I'm seeing so much of this among people I know?
0: Yeah, I think it
4: really is
0: a problem over this time, you know, for people who already have a drinking problem, it's so much harder when you're stuck at home and you don't have any of your usual sort of coping mechanisms to rely on to be able to stay sober. And even for the average person, there's perhaps a tendency to begin drinking earlier in the day when you've been home all day and to rely on alcohol to sort of self-medicate your anxiety. With this, I would say really trying to work out healthy coping mechanisms for home, things that can sort of be a substitute for drinking. And especially for that sort of danger time of day, you know, the sort of suicide hour towards the end of the day when it's time to get children and ready for bed and dinner on the table and, you know, a glass of wine or a bottle of wine looks incredibly appealing. To think about what could you do instead at that time? You know, could you actually have a friend on speakerphone that you can talk to while you're cooking the dinner? You know, could you take the kids out and go for a walk? Are there other things that that you can do? For people who are trying not to drink at all, I guess not having alcohol in the house is a really important thing at a time like this.
1: Clinical psychologist, Dr. Jackie Winship, speaking with Yumi Steins on the podcast, Ladies, We Need to Talk. Well, Reverend Dr. Dorothy Lee, when you're not alone, isolated from societal expectations, do you feel the lure of temptation in whatever form that may take?
4: Well, I'm going to be really honest with you here and say that my temptation is chocolate, (laughs) <laughs> and I'm afraid when being alone I have been yielding to that particular temptation, having gone to Cocoa oh. Black and picked up some supplies.
1: Oh, well, you're a sick addict. <laughs> 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 what about you, uh, Susan Murphy?
3: Look, I, I'm trying to think what my temptation is. I I think I'm tempted just to sort of, walk outside and look at the sky check out the sky news or something like that i i actually live in a place which is incredibly beautiful the fact that i can feel connected to you know what the birds are doing and what the clouds are doing and how the light looks now and how the wind is sounding and it, it, it's a very it, it's a great pleasure to be and I'm not trying to be Pollyanna or say everything's perfect. And I'm very aware of how powerfully the depth of suffering that this whole sudden kind of massive interruption is causing in so many lives. But I think when it comes to something like routine, the question of routine or, or managing not to succumb to our sort of obsessive behaviour or something like that. I think the way through there is just to know what you are doing, to actually invest your awareness in what you are doing. To have a glass of wine, for example, but to really do nothing but taste that wine as you're drinking, as you're taking a sip, or to as, you know, to go walking on the grass and and know that you're walking on the grass is a totally different experience to just walking on the grass. It's a miracle, in fact, you know, it's, it's
1: equal yes. to the miracle on water. Susan, I know you're not indifferent to the suffering of others. I know that for a fact. And yet the language that we have today, the language of the lockdown and the language of just a few weeks ago during the bushfire tragedy, which seems like years ago, which affected you directly in the Kangaroo Valley of New South Wales, the language of shelter in place, this whole vocabulary to you is a whole distortion of your life and yet you're not unsympathetic to the trauma and tragedy that exists all around you.
3: Well, I, don't, I think we have to be completely aware of both the fact that life is very generous as well as being very demanding. At that time of shelter in place, that was actually the most dire thing you could hear um, from the Rural Fire Service because what it meant was it's too late to leave no help can be made available to you or you cannot count on it. You must shelter in place, whatever possible way you can find to do that. But now shelter in place is being used somewhere, in some places as an alternative to the word lockdown, which actually has a very sort of exterior, external authority about it. You know, someone else is locking you down. You are locking down as though you're under attack. Now shelter in place is starting to feel like take refuge in the actual nature of the place where you are and actually take shelter there, take refuge, take take the advantage of of deepening your connection with it. Instead of kind of buzzing from one place to another and leaning forward into the next moment and checking devices instead of being where you are or and so on, you know, 20 people at a bus stop None of them present at the bus stop, all of them on their phones. That kind of nowhere, somewhere in general, which is somewhere mediated by a screen. From one point of view, we now can only mediate through a screen, but now it's to seek that deeper connection with each other that is no longer possible in the old form. So even the screen has become somehow permeable in a fresh way. You know, we we now can almost touch each other through the screen which which has now been put in place or rather we have been kept in place so that we're not touching each other directly in a dangerous way but i take um, some sort of pleasure from that phrase shelter in place it's an invitation to know the place where you are to actually love the place where you are
1: that's interesting dorothy lee isn't it the (laughs) <laughs> what weeks ago, months ago, the screen was the enemy of society, and <laughs> and but a few sleeps later, it's the only thing standing between us, COVID nineteen, and human relations.
4: Um, yeah, yes, I guess that's true. Um, but I think that uh, what Susan's saying is really profound about living in the present moment and relishing the present moment instead of passing over it. Um, being conscious of the people you walk past, being conscious of the trees and the birds and the grass. And uh, as I say that, I'm also aware that some people do not live in, in those sort of contexts. that They live in, in very, very small apartments where, where they're surrounded by really by a lot of ugliness rather than parkland and, and beauty. Um, and it, my heart bleeds for those people who cannot actually um, see the world around them and nature around them. Um, and I think they should be allowed to drive to park.
1: But what if I repeat that cynical point before? Their life is in trouble not because they can't see birds or leaves, it's because Jesus can't pay their rent.
4: <laughs> well, well, I think that ultimately uh, Christ is with all of us, and and does lead us into paths of life um, if we have the capacity to look for them. And we need to ensure that other people are actually being led into life and that we're not getting in their way um, by, by refusing to uh, allow them to have rent-free lives where, the, where they're given the money they need to eat. Um, I, I think that's an important part of Christ's teaching,
3: actually. I think he does pay the rent.
1: Uh, Susan Murphy, would you like to add something to this?
3: The fundamental place we have to come to with any consideration of the economy has to be the bottom line itself, which is the earth herself. It is the earth. Even economy means, you know, comes from the word household. Well, the fundamental household is the earth. And as Dorothy was pointing out much earlier, this has been a wonderful interruption to that attack upon the earth. Just to have no planes in the sky and, and many fewer cars on the road has already altered you know, what China looks like from space, for example. The sense of lifting the burden on the earth, because during the bushfires, what was so vivid to everybody, not just in Australia, but the whole world. Was that sense of 20% of Australia's, of Australia was on fire. And that was so, such an extreme, direct kind of revelation of where we are at this moment. Now, if that gets buried rapidly by snapping back, I already dislike that word, that term snapping back into exactly where we were then the entire bitter lesson of this time will have been squandered and so i just want to make a, a very strong case for easing back with intelligence and feeling for the fact that this overturning of the whole neoliberal dream has been a wonderful thing to actually see to actually see the word essential being used to differentiate between pointless things and what really counts. A friend of mine was looking out at the Sydney skyline from where he lives and he noticed that instead of all the buildings being lit up at night, so many of them are dark now. And it's almost like a direct presentation of all the non-essential, but extraordinarily elaborate things that we have been doing. The essential things turn out to be the immune system of the of the of the society, which is the medical uh, our health system. Without that, the whole body body politic collapses. That's the essential business, and of course, people who carry it out aren't paid very well.
1: Well, Susan and Dorothy, you both make very important contemporary points. My final question to you both before we get to the quiz. Uh, What are the ancient points you can make? That is to say, what do the ancient texts, which you both revere through your Buddhism and your Christianity, what can either of those texts provide us, given they come from a time when the smallest thing conceived of was an ant? And the thing that afflicts us today is a virus only seen under a microscope. Is there anything your tradition can give us that can help us today in the 21st century? Dorothy, you first.
4: Um, Yeah, look, that's a very good question, James. Um, I do think that there's a lot that uh, uh, certainly my tradition, uh, our broader Judeo-Jewish and Christian tradition, I think can offer. Um, situations of plague were not unknown in the ancient world; far from it. Um, and I think there's there's a number of responses that s- some of our early forebears, our mothers and fathers, in faith, actually offer us. And, and one is a sense of that that God um, ultimately, um, that God and life will ultimately win. Um, a sense that that it, that the future is in divine hands, in sovereign hands. Um, And and the second thing is that in the meantime that God is present with us and in in Christian understanding, God suffers with us um, and and knows what it is to suffer with us because we believe that God became incarnate, um, became flesh in in Jesus. Um, And the third thing I think that that our, our tradition offers us is that fighting against the forces of death and darkness, is something that we are called to do. And in doing that, we may have to sacrifice our lives so that if there's plague, um, it's not us that should be running away but should be staying to care for those in need, even at the risk of our own lives. Um, And there are countless examples in the history of of the church of, of women and men who've done precisely that. So they're the three messages I get from my tradition and at Easter, for example, now.
1: I can think of at least three or four New South Wales laws you've broken, but thank you very much, Dorothy.
4: (laughs) (laughs) Thank God I live in Victoria.
1: (laughs) Roshi Susan Murphy, uh, your response?
3: Yeah, okay. Well, that word suffering and suffering with is, is very germane to the Buddhist tradition. Suffering ripens us. Everything you've ever found in your life that is valuable has actually come through something difficult, on the whole, and you wouldn't give it back despite the cost of difficulty. You wouldn't give it back to get rid of that difficulty.
1: Well, I can make this promise to you, Roshi Susan. Either you or Reverend Dorothy will suffer, depending on who wins or loses the quiz. Wit's End is up next. (laughs) Wits Yes, it's Wits end, the God forbid quiz. And as always, we begin with the buzzers. Reverend Dr. Dorothy Lee, look directly into my face whilst you test your buzzer. <coughs> yes, thank you, Dorothy. <coughs> right, that's good. Okay. Roshi <laughs> Susan Murphy, test your buzzer. House cat flu is coming. Yes, house cat flu, God forbid, buzzes are working. Okay, I'm going to ask about the strict lockdown laws in Australia. On Mad as Hell, Sean McAuliffe worked out a sneaky way of getting around the law when it comes to funerals. Have a listen funerals are now limited to 10 mourners. No limit, though, on the numbers of those happy to see the deceased dead. Could I, for example, have 10 mourners at my funeral and another two to stay within the new definition of group who were delighted by my demise? Well, why not? The quiz question for the panel is, how does Sean McAuliffe get around the law limiting weddings to a maximum of five guests? House cat flu is coming. (coughs)
4: People who are sad about the relationship that's about to take place? No. I give up.
1: Here's Sean with the answer. And why only five at weddings? Yet two people can train together outdoors. So I could have seven people at my garden wedding if we all did squats during the ceremony. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) You exercise at the wedding and you can have seven instead of five. A question in 2016, Albert Woodfox was released from a Louisiana prison uh, after serving his sentence for killing a prison guard, a crime he says he did not commit. We've been locked down in our homes for a few weeks. How long was he kept in solitary isolation, no human contact of any kind, in a six by nine foot cell, a 23 23- years, B, 33 years, C, 43 years, D, 53 years. Dorothy and Susan. I'd go for
4: 43 years.
3: All right, I'll say 33.
1: It is indeed 43 years. He was allowed out of his cell one hour a day, but that was only uh, shackled his um his hands shackled to his legs uh, and then moved into a, a cement yard barely bigger than his cell. He was released at the age of 69, 43 years in a uh, it's inhuman six six by nine foot cell question last week New Zealand Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern declared which two fictional characters, To be essential workers in the COVID 19 virus era. Dorothy, Susan, what classification of workers did she declare to be essential? I'll give you a clue. It made her very popular with children,
4: childcare workers, obviously. (laughs)
3: But wait a minute. No, isn't it? Fictional characters, yeah.
1: Fictional, yeah. Childcare workers are not fictional.
3: They're not fictional. Sorry, yes. Okay, Alice in Wonderland?
1: Their pay may be fictional, but they themselves are not. (laughs) Shall we listen to the Prime Minister herself to hear what the answer is?
3: Yes, let's
1: do that. Here she is, New Zealand Prime Minister (laughs) Jacinda Ardern.
3: You'll be pleased to know um, that we do consider both the Tooth Fairy and the Easter Bunny to be essential workers. Um, But as you can imagine at this time, of course, they're going to be um, potentially quite busy at home with their their family as well and their own bunnies. And so um, I say to the children of New Zealand, if the Easter Bunny doesn't make it to your household, um, then uh, we have to understand that it's a bit difficult at the moment for the bunny to perhaps get everywhere.
1: Yes, that's the uh, New Zealand Labor Prime Minister either trying to uh, comfort the children in families of modest means who may be unable to provide children with chocolate Easter eggs this year or in a cynical ploy to attract the voters of uh, Marxist Labor children in 20 years from now, depending on what your perspective is. Uh, <laughs> but either way, we've got to the end of God Forbid. Dorothy and Susan, thanks both very much for your participation. Dorothy, it's been a ball.
4: Pleasure. I've enjoyed it very much. And nice nice to have heard Susan too. Really wonderful things
1: you said. It surely was. Roshi, yeah. Susan Murphy, thank you. Okay.
3: Thank, thank you. you. Thank you, Dorothy.
1: And the Reverend Dr. Dorothy Lees, a professor of New Testament studies at the University of Divinity. She's a minister of the uh, Anglican Church's Doctrine Commission and her dozen plus books and chapters on the Gospel of John are studied around the world. Also, Roshi Susan Murphy is a master of Zen Buddhism, the founder of Sydney's Zen Open Circle, the author of Minding the Earth, Mending the World, plus her latest Red Thread Zen, Humanly Entangled in Emptiness. Don't forget, you can subscribe to the God Forbid podcast on the ABC Listen app or wherever you get podcasts. Email me at godforbid at abc.net.au. I'm James Carpenter. Until next week, remember to be good and safe. God forbid.